We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today, I've got Jason Miller with me. Jason is a herbalist and acupuncturist. He studied at the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine and also spent some time in Nanjing, China. He originally had a background in pre-med. He's studied applied kinesiology, and he uses uh, acupuncture, Chinese medicine, various botanicals, and some other uh, ways of, of treating people, functional medicine, some other things that he'll get into. And he helps people with cancer, and he uh, helps people with chronic disease. Our focus of today's show is treating prostate issues in particular and, and men's health in general. This is a topic we don't hear a whole lot about in Chinese medicine, but oh my goodness, you know, it's half the population out there that might be dealing with this stuff. So we're going to dig into this stuff today with Jason. Hey, Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great. So give us a little bit of background. How did you, first of all, wind your way into medicine? And, and, and beyond that, how did you get this uh, sort of focus on men's health? Well, I'll just say, you know, the focus on men's health, I think, was a similar course as the focus on medicine. I, d I didn't necessarily know I was headed that way. Um, with medicine, I, I mean, originally as a youngster, you know, as in high school and, and even earlier, I thought, oh, I'm definitely going to be a doctor. I just thought that was a great path to take. And as I got deeper into my studies, I was at the University of Minnesota and I did, you know, over three years of study as a pre-med student, a biology major, and, um, you know, eventually just had a revelation that, God, you know, this isn't really what I want to do. I don't really want to dive into pharmaceutical medicine and, and be, you know, really just treating dis-ease. And at some point, I kind of realized that really our dis-ease is a product of our own actions and that, I, you know, if I want to make a change and be a part of the solution, I should probably find a way to not be a part of the problem. Um, and so I shifted my focus into permaculture and, uh, and alternative energy systems, and I went up to Evergreen uh, the, the Evergreen State College. Ah, you're a greener, Columbia. are you? I am a greener. Yeah, technically, I did graduate from Evergreen. Uh -huh. Proud of it. Go Gooey uh, Ducks. Oh, man, it was good back in 95, I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so I came out of there thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm definitely going to change the world, and I want to do it through you know, creating a permaculture type of environment, an environment where you know, self-reliance and sustainability are the focus. And so I did eventually get to a little farm down in Ashton with my wife, Cara, and we had a community-supported agriculture program and started developing some systems and getting our permaculture kind of living situation in order. But, you know, as things go, things changed. We weren't able to buy the land. We had, you know, a couple different issues that came up, and so then I ended up moving and came back to town, and I, I was really into music at the time and worked at the university a little bit, doing tutoring and just kind of staying plugged in but not not really uh, following the path of medicine. And then eventually my wife got a job working for a Chinese herbalist and an acupuncturist here. And, um, you know, through, through a few conversations with him, realizing the Taoist sort of roots of Chinese medicine and the permaculture perspective that it allows you to 
to take on the human body instead of realizing that, oh, wow, I could actually do permaculture in the human body and combine both of my dreams into one path. And I was like, okay, this is great. So my wife and I decided to get married, go to school. And so we did. We you know, went up to OCOM and did the three years and a little extra there doing a full-time all-year-round program and then went to China and did another couple months at Nanjing University of Traditional Chinese Medicine and, uh, and then came back here to Ashland and set up a practice. And there it was. We started practicing medicine. And to, to go on to your second, second part of your question, men's health wasn't something I focused on. I, I definitely was being drawn into the world of cancer through my association with Donald Yance, the master herbalist, clinical nutritionist who's published many papers and has a few books out there and is quite a famous figure now in the realm of herbalism and cancer. And, uh, you know, Donnie and I have been friends from well before I graduated. So by the time I was getting out of school, he already had me well groomed and primed to be working for him at his uh, new company at the time, Natura Health Products, which produces uh, a really high quality, you know, medicinal products that a lot of them are very helpful in cancer cases. And uh, and then Donnie got me working through his, at his clinic too, the Center for Natural Healing, which also then became the Madiri Foundation, which is a foundation that helps um, folks with cancer make you know good decisions and get them support and help find the right path for them through that challenging disease. And so I started working with Donnie at Madiri. I did five years of clinical work out of his clinic while I also built my practice, Jade Mountain Medicine, here in Ashland and um, worked for Natura. And just basically, just I just saw cancer cases over and over and over again. Every week, I'd get you know five, ten new cases, and so it's been kind of a crash course the last eleven, twelve years into cancer. And of course, one of the things that you always see in, in a busy family practice like my Jade Mountain practice is men's health issues. You know, and outside of prostate cancer, which I've seen a lot of and have many patients who have prostate cancer, you see a lot of men's health issues. Mostly, I see benign prosthetic hyperplasia, which is the most common um, sort of aging uh, male hormonal decline issue that we see today. And one that you know, I think, Michael, you mentioned all of us as um, aging men are going to face. Pretty much like the vast majority. Right. And I mean, you know, and literally I'm treating myself with herbs and dietary and lifestyle choices that basically state that I already have prostate cancer because, you know, as the research goes, if you live long enough, you will have prostate cancer, all of us. So, you know, there's something really important um, to be taken in that little lesson, just the environmental conditions right now, the the way that the world is today, the way that we metabolize the different compounds, the emotions, the stress, our sleep, whatever it is, the combination of factors that lead to us having a, you know, an issue with the prostate, well, they're kind of unavoidable. I mean, unless you're going to probably, you know, go be a monk in in the mountains somewhere and, and actually just do that meditative life practice, that's not what most of us are doing. Most of us are living in this world and trying to figure it out. Right. So since since we're going in that direction, what is it about the environment these days that leads toward cancer in men? Well, prostate cancer in particular. And, and you mentioned other stuff, uh, emotions and lifestyle and, and things of that nature. What is it about our lives today that leads us down this path? I think it's a really good question and a really pertinent question, and uh, the list goes on, and I think the list is ever-growing of things that are affecting you know, how we metabolize our life experience here. And when I say metabolize a life experience, I really literally mean you know, metabolize, which means you know, take something, break it down into smaller pieces, and then conjugate it into something that's you know, safe and easy to get rid of. That's what we do emotionally. You know, you have an emotional trauma. You've got to find a way to decide. You know, what what out of this emotional trauma do I take with me? What out of this emotional trauma do I package up and, and let go? What do I assimilate? What do I absorb? Yeah. All these digestive you know concepts that come into the the emotional life experience, but then the actual physical life experience too. We're we're having to deal with all kinds of new um, and and you know un known to us uh, what they do to our bodies, type of compounds, compounds that we have not studied in any kind of a, a realistic fashion. I mean, we've looked at the toxicities of things like lead and things like uh, you know, pesticides and fluorocarbons and uh, you know, halogens like chlorine. And we've looked at those things as isolated components. And normally our, our EPA and the FDA and other organizations will help to try a, to minimize um, those amounts of compounds of those types, you know, but normally it's just they're analyzing one of those compounds and 
at this point, we know that we have hundreds, if not thousands, of those compounds in our environment. You know, everything from standing on the street corner where the car passes you by, and over and over again, releasing all those petroleum byproducts, you know, that you're breathing in, that then become metabolized and change into whatever they might change into. And I think one of the big issues is that, you know, as we look into epigenetics, the really the functioning of our genes, how they're, you know, how they either make certain proteins or don't. Um, those proteins can become enzymes that are part of our metabolic processes. And some people have genes that can deal with today's onslaught of chemical contaminants, you know, things that could hurt us, carcinogenic substances. And other people don't, you know, other people don't have the enzymatic capacity to break down those compounds and then get rid of them in a safe way. So we don't know who is who, you know, we're starting to deal with epigenetics in some larger ways. You know, the 23andMe program came out a few years ago and it's been really helpful for a lot of people in um, understanding certain elements of the way that they metabolize life. But but again, you know, we start looking at isolated pathways as we do um, and that doesn't account for the complex web of interactions that occur. So, you know, you've got this, like I said, this onslaught of chemical compounds coming in that change the way that we metabolize other compounds and I think one of the things that, you know, becomes a big player in the prostate is the existence of xenoestrogens. Xenoestrogens meaning kind of foreign estrogen-like substances that enter the body, go through the liver, and then are metabolized into whatever those metabolites are that have some kind of a, a deleterious effect on the body. And, you know, estrogen is one of our main reproductive hormones. Um, all of those hormones that we use for rebuilding our tissues like testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, all their byproducts, all the downstream um, versions of those compounds, they all induce growth in our cells and you know, work, work with um, you know, cellular repl replication and rebuilding of tissues in our body. So they're very important to us. You know, that's a really interesting thing. I, I think a lot of people, when they think of these hormones, they think of sexual function or they, or they think like testosterone, it helps you keep your muscle mass and sexual vitality and women with estrogen, it keeps their skin nice and, and things like that. But what I hear you saying is these things also are growth hormones and they help our bodies repair and grow tissue. Absolutely. Without them, we start to fall apart, literally, you know, like, like people have always said, Every seven years, right, you've rebuilt every, every cell in your body. You're, you're a completely new individual. The major impetus for that to happen in the body is this induction of cellular replication and tissue regeneration through the, the release of these hormones. Of course, in Chinese medicine, we would say that this is our essence, right? Yes. And we're talking about essence. And essence is the, the material we have to make ourselves every day. And as that essence is then being, you know, I, and I, in Chinese medicine, essence comes from the kidneys. And it's housed in the Ming Mun, the life gate, which then releases the essence. And I always see the adrenal glands sitting right on top of the kidneys as the suprarenal glands. Those glands basically direct how much and what kind of essence is going to go out into the body. So, you know, the adrenal glands, as you know, produce DHEA and they produce pregnenolone, these precursor hormones that make all those downstream hormones that we just talked about. So you're releasing essence, you're getting it out through the adrenals, you're putting it out into the body, and that material is going out there to replicate and regenerate us every moment of every day. And so we have to have those things. We have to have those hormones, absolutely. But it's it's when these, you know, alterations occur and there are ways that the body converts between hormones. You know, for example, testosterone becomes estrogen very easily through a pathway called aromatase. Aromatase is an enzyme that is produced by fat cells in the body, mainly adipocytes. So it's a thing that you can see when women hit the menopause period and they stop producing estrogen from the ovaries, what will happen is they will start to shift over to an aromatase-based estrogen-making program. So they'll start to take testosterone that's coming from their adrenal glands, and then they'll convert it with this enzyme over to estrogen so that they have enough estrogen to go ahead and help regenerate their bone, for example. You know, bone has a lot of estrogen receptors on it. It helps to regenerate, like you said, skin, tissue. It's also helpful for the heart and the blood vessels. And then testosterone also, very important for bone health, very important for cardiovascular health. It regenerates the blood vessels. If we don't have that signal, then those systems fall apart. Since talking about enzymes, you know, they're the other enzyme that's a big player um, with, with these disruptors, these xenoestrogens and you know, chemical toxins, it can start to play with these enzyme systems and it can increase 
the rate at which we convert estrogen into testosterone or increase the rate at which we convert testosterone into one of its downstream metabolites, dihydrotestosterone. And these are some of the kind of alterations that occur under the environmental conditions that are present today. And I think that, you know, we, we can't go in there with a little camera and see how these enzymes are working and, you know, give somebody a certain food or expose them to a, chemi- a chemical compound and watch what happens. We have to, you know, do these kind of rigorous studies and, and try, to, try to figure things out. And that's challenging to do. So, you know, epidemiological studies, studies that go back and look at what people did over a course of time and then how that affected a health outcome, you know, they're, they're a good place for us to look and to, to get some sense of things, but it's really not like, oh, this is how it is. This is not clear, true data. It's, it's, just, it's helpful stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about this. Um, you were talking about testosterone converting into estrogen. One of the, and I want to get back to prostates here in a moment, but I, I got this question. It's hot at the moment. You know, there's all these testosterone clinics popping up these days, right? Because men want to keep their muscle mass. They want to keep their sexual vitality. And, you know, it seems like a pretty simple algebra. One plus one equals two, low testosterone. Well, go get some more testosterone. Everything will be fine. But you're talking about testosterone actually getting converted into estrogen, which is not exactly what men are looking for. That's absolutely right. And, you know, and this, it brings up a lot of for me. I, you, you ask great questions. I, it starts to get me a kind of a flood of possible uh, routes of answering these questions. And I'll just start somewhere and t- help me help me keep it to where it makes more sense. I'll try to keep you on the rails. Keep me on the rails because there's a lot there. We've got a little bit of time. <laughs> so I'd love to help people understand this a little bit. Yeah. So the idea is that, you know, like we said, testosterone as a, um, a regenerating and what we call an anabolic hormone, a hormone that helps to reproduce, replicate tissue. It's really important, not only in men, but also in women. And men, of course, suffer from a couple of different issues when, when testosterone levels are low. Um, and we can obviously associate this to some degree in Chinese medicine with the kidney yang deficiency. There are other aspects of that as well. But as testosterone levels decline in a man, he does lose muscle mass. It is harder to build muscle. Um, you do lose uh, erectile function. Libido goes down. Bone health starts to decline. Neurological health starts to decline. And, and a big one is cardiovascular health. And one of the things that we find now is that cardiovascular disease is actually promoted in large part by low testosterone in our current ecosystemic condition, the situation we're in, in in the world right now, as we're talking about, where men are having low testosterone, we're seeing that uh, cardiovascular disease is a big outcome, a big result. And you'll find that with prostate cancer and prostate you know, hyperplasia, uh, there's a lot of overlap between cardiovascular disease symptoms and having those diseases. So it's a really interesting place to, to draw some parallels, uh, which we can do a little bit further down the road. But you know, to get back to that question about so, all right, I'm a man, and I understand that testosterone is the key for me to rebuild these really important areas, keep me healthy. Can I just go get some testosterone? And there's, there's been a, an ongoing debate around this for a long time. And you can just go get testosterone. And a lot of men who are bodybuilders and women who are bodybuilders will take testosterone. And in order to keep that testosterone from converting over to estrogen, so so there's that, that enzyme we talked about, the aromatase enzyme, which converts the testosterone into estrogen, that enzyme again, has to deal with fat tissue. So if somebody goes in and they're already a little bit obese, they have some extra midsection fat, they're going to be converting that testosterone into estrogen pretty rapidly. So it's the, the fat cells are helping to do that. Absolutely. This goes hand in hand as, as you approach things like metabolic syndrome, more diabetes, um, issues of insulinism, and you know, a little bit of body mass index increase. You'll start to see a shift. Men will become more estrogenic. And so when you see a man come into your office, if they have those characteristics, you can already be thinking that they may be estrogen dominant and they may be, you know, have low testosterone. So, well, why can't you just give someone testosterone and, and, you know, turn it all around? Well, because of course that's one issue that testosterone could get converted into estrogen via aromatase. But is another issue is that, uh, there's another enzyme called five alpha reductase, which will turn that testosterone into another metabolite called dihydrotestosterone and dihydrotestosterone is another it's an androgen hormone, just like testosterone, in that it does that same thing. It interacts with the cell surface. It has a receptor that it affects. And when that receptor is affected, then the cell that's being affected will go through rapid changes, growth. And there can be mutational changes that occur, especially under the influence of more anabolic hormones, a more active metabolite like dihydrotestosterone, which is one of the sources of prostatic tissue growth. 
So a lot of men that have either benign prostatic hyperplasia or prostate cancer have issues with dihydrotestosterone. So they've got high levels of this hormone, and so that's driving the growth. Exactly. And it, and, and it may not even be high levels, Michael. It might actually be relatively high levels compared to their free testosterone, the amount of testosterone they have in circulation to use to do the, the jobs that testosterone normally does that we've talked about. So someone could have a low testosterone on the whole, like a low total testosterone, let's say, and then you look at their free testosterone and that's also low, then that person might have a low dihydrotestosterone. Well, that's a normal picture. If the person comes in though and their total testosterone, let's say it's in the normal range or even it's a little bit high, but at the same time, their free testosterone, their circulating you know, easy access testosterone is low normal or even low, and then their dihydrotestosterone is in the mid-range or you know, it's somewhere in, in a higher range relative to the free testosterone. That's when you start seeing this shift away from a normal testosterone metabolism into this dihydrotestosterone promoted tissue change. And you know, one of the things you look for, the, the pattern of uh, baldness in men, male pattern baldness, that's uh, oftentimes a dihydrotestosterone driven problem where that conversion of testosterone into DHT is leading to hair loss. And we see it in women. It, it's, it's a part of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, a lot of those women have problems both with insulin and as well with dihydrotestosterone. It, it leads to that uh, you know, little growth of hair around the cheeks, on the chin, um, it, it's acne around the chest and on the face also. In men, the hair moves from the top of the head down to the back, you know, onto the back of the body. Yeah, and then, and then, and then out the ears. And out the ears. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm curious. I mean, this stuff to me is really fascinating because I'm also into the permaculture of the body. I often, one of the things I've loved about Chinese medicine is that it looks at our body more as an ecosystem and a garden rather than a, than a machine. When we think about cultivating that garden, what is it that, let's say men have this problem. They were, you know, they've been listening to this show here and they recognize themselves and what you've just been talking about. Are there things guys can do with their lifestyle or their food, things like to do or not to do? What, how would you start to deal with this, this if this is you? Well, the first thing you do is you don't just jump to a testosterone clinic and get an injection. If you do that, then you, you, there's ways you can help your body to shift away from turning that testosterone into these metabolites that we don't want, like estrogen or dihydrotestosterone. And of course, pharmaceutical companies developed ways of doing that. They've got drugs. You know, there's, there's the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, those blood drugs that will stop your testosterone from becoming DHT. And then there's the aromatase inhibitors, drugs that will stop your body from converting that testosterone into estrogen. And a lot of people who go to these clinics do those things. They take these drugs. But we also have in the natural medicine world plants that will help inhibit those pathways and help to keep your testosterone as what you want it to be, free testosterone. And in Chinese medicine, there's, well, there's really not a lot of literature on the prostate itself. Uh, remember, this is a system that was developed to deal with, like you said, an ecosystem, um, not so much an isolated organ, or, you know, part of that machinistic type of approach. So they, there's not a lot of mention of prostate uh, swelling, sw- prostate enlargement, but there are formulas that deal with urinary problems. And most of the time, those are the, the Lin syndromes, as they're called, called basically, you know, uh, urinary blockage syndromes. And so Chinese medicine tries to, as it always does in such a beautiful way, it, it looks at the whole person and it identifies a, a pattern of dysfunction. You know, we call it pattern differentiation where you're looking at um, what is it about the constellation of symptoms that make up this person's presentation that tell me, oh, this is what's going on for them and this is how I need to treat them. And so in Chinese medicine, we might see something like, you know, as, as we're talking about aging, prostate cancer and prostate hyperplasia, they both occur more in men who are aging and especially over 60 years old. You do see the isolated cases, you know, the strange cases of younger people that get these things, but it's not 18-year-old men. And so it's pretty obvious that, uh, you know, testosterone is not the issue here. If it was, then 18-year-old boys and men would have the, uh, the, the highest occurrence of prostate cancer and BPH, but they don't ever get it. They just don't have it. So there's something else going on. It's about these all this metabolism. And so Chinese medicine looks at the ecosystem of the whole body. It looks at, is there heat somewhere, or cold? Is there dampness or phlegm? Is there turbidity in the system? What's happening? Are there deficiencies in certain organs? And then it it approaches those deficiencies or excesses, and it treats them with 
natural therapies, lifestyle changes, exercise, all the things that we can do to try and change that ecosystem so that it supports healthy tissue. And you know, for me, one of the things, Michael, that 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 I really get passionate about is the overlaying of the two systems, like being able to layer the lenses between a traditional Chinese medicine perspective that takes that ecological, what I call the macro ecological perspective, and then you move on to the micro rational where you're taking a a very modern rationalistic microscopic view of the individual parts but then you what what I do is I'm trying to bring those two things together in a seamless way where you never stop thinking about your principles even if you look through a microscope you're still comparing things in the same way just as though you're looking at your garden you're not isolating out a, a molecule or a, an interaction merely to you know understand its role at, you're actually trying to see it within the whole and how is it being affected by all the bigger changes in the ecosystem? And when we talk about ecosystem changes, we're talking about how does the tissue in the body actually change? If you start to dump in a whole bunch of sweets, a lot of sugar, a lot of carbohydrates into the body, over time, as you age, you will start to gain weight. And that weight will not be in the form of muscle, obviously. It will be in the form of adipose tissue. Your body will start to store that glucose energy that's being you know, broken down in your digestive system, down out of all those carbs. That will then become fat. You'll start to build fat. You know, for a long time, the misnomer was that, oh, if you eat fat, you get fat. Well, we're over that. We know now if you eat sugar, you get fat. So if you start, if you start building that fatty tissue, we in Chinese medicine, we see you start building what's something called phlegm. You start creating turbidity and dampness in the body. When it starts to get cloudy, what's going on? If we, if we look at it under the microscope, you start to see development of cholesterol, cholesterol levels, triglycerides start to go up. The HDL, your low density or your high density lipids go down. You start to see the, the production of other compounds in the blood that wouldn't be there. These enzymes, these other fat cell adipocyte produced hormones like ghrelin and adiponectin and leptin and resistin. And then you start seeing that insulin and glucose don't communicate as well anymore and glucose is being turned into fat rather than being connected to insulin and becoming energy because you don't need energy you're not using it you're just taking in all this really rich we call it dampening phlegm forming food and it's just making your body filled with turbidity and so you get real you know we always talk about words like pallid color in the face wan complexion kind of a flabby tissue well all of that stuff that flabbiness that's going to be reflected in the organ networks all the organ networks. and So you end up with a flabby prostate. Sure, exactly. Yep. And you go down to the bottom of the whole network. If I, one of the slides I had for this uh, lecture I did last year on the prostate, it was the, the opening slide was a dam. Basically, like just like there's a big amount of water pressure coming through. And at the bottom of that, where you know, the water goes out into the rest of the world, there's a dam. And of course, in Chinese medicine, it was a sluice because they had all those systems of canals. So they'd open and close the sluices to let water in and out in a canal type of way. Well, that's what's, what the prostate is doing at the bottom of our, of our, of our body. Literally, all the fluid metabolism is being released at its, its final output at the prostate. So when that gate gets big and flabby, it loses its control. And Again, if you could just simply think of it as like the, the prostate's swollen, there's too much tissue there, and so it doesn't allow materials to go past it. That's part of it for sure. And there's also some tissue spasticity that happens, muscle spasming in the prostate. That's also a problem, and that can often happen when the tissues around there get tight and tense. And when the flabby issues happen, there's weakness, there's uh, a buildup of tension in the wrong parts of the body because the body's really not you know, harmonious. It's not working in a harmonious way. Right. So what can guys do in their lifestyle or their food? You know, let's say someone sort of sees themselves in this conversation and they want to do something besides maybe take something like Flomax or they, you know, they want to head trouble off at the pass. And when I say head trouble off at the pass, I mean, make sure that you're happy and healthy 15, 20 years down the road. If you see yourself headed this direction and, you know, let's face it, most men, we're going to head that direction to one degree or another. What can we do to change the environment in ourselves to prevent these issues or at least minimize them to some degree? I think that's, that's a great question for sure. And there's a lot of things we can do. And it's really, you know, there's lots of different realms. When, when you work in this field of natural medicine, what you're trying to do is help people find ways, obviously, to empower themselves to make change. And there are things we can do in our, within our lifestyle, sleep, getting rest. We can't say enough about that, how important it is to not miss sleep and especially don't offset your sleep by three to five hours 
per night, you know, like working a night shift and then, and then going back to a day life, that's really hard on the body. It'll be hard on the prostate too. The foods that we eat, the amount of stress that we have in our bodies. Okay. Hang on just one hot second. Um, the foods we eat. So this is, this is a little bit of a hot button for me. I'm not necessarily a nutritionist, but you know, as you were saying, we now know that Fat doesn't make you fat. Sugar makes you fat. But there's a lot of people that don't know this. And so when you talk about foods, you know, I mean, you probably see this in your practice too. You ask people, you know, how's your diet? They go, oh, it's a pretty good diet. And it's like, well, that's nice to know. What do you consider a good diet? All right. Different people are going to have some really different ideas. So what would you consider a diet that would be, let's say, prostate friendly? Well, again, I'll just say there's not a one-size-fits-all diet, and that's because we're back to the uniqueness of each individual person. And I think if we went back to the Taoist times and saw how a Taoist doctor would investigate a person, would would observe the person, would see the, the type of tissue that they have, would see the history. And, you know, one of the things that happened in old days was that you might see the same family, the same genetic line coming for, you know, 19 generations or something. You know, your dad's dad, your great-grandfathers were treating these people as great-grandfathers. And so you know a lot about the history of that person, which tells you a lot about how they do with certain things genetically. We don't have that information so much anymore. It's such an anonymous world and it's such a, you know, kind of everything thrown together in this internet thing. It's hard, it's hard to say, yeah, this is the diet for this person. And so I think your question about are, are there general dietary rules and, you know, or at least uh, maybe guidelines, yeah, decisions people can make, there are things. And first of all, is, is definitely staying away from the, the high-carbohydrate diets. We know that that's a big issue. One of the things that comes up in prostate cancer is the issue around meat and, um, you know, and, and meat eating. And there was, you know, the China study came out too, and that was another big kind of you know, blast against meat eating and, you know, saying that meat and animal products is, is the cause of cancer. And I don't agree with that concept at all. I think that eating animal products is just, just like so many things has been a part of human life for, you know, as long as we can remember. And the way that people digest and metabolize meat generally is really good. I find that very few people have sensitivities to meat in the clinic. They're able, it's one of the things they can eat, even if, they've, if they're unable to eat most other foods, if they're really having sensitivity issues, that's one thing they can do. So again, it comes back to eating organic, free-range meat. So meat that's been taken care of. And these are living animals, so they're, they need to be in their normally occurring environment, of course, these are, you know, these are feral or domestic animals like a cow or a pig, but, you know, giving them places to roam, giving them good whole foods, foods that, foods that they would eat, not feeding them grains, not building them up into these Franken food animals. That's not the point. The point is to make them healthy, strong animals, both emotionally and physically. And then if we eat those things, you know, we're, we're, if we cook meat, the key thing is it's it's got to be cooked in a way that preserves the meat, especially so that the the inside of it is still mostly rare. You know, you don't want to eat overcooked meat. We know that carcinogens and meat are connected through the buildup of those polycyclic amines, those compounds that are created during the heating of the meat, especially the burning of the meat. So if you burn it, it's going to have a carcinogenic effect. But if you don't burn it, we don't know that there's any carcinogenic effect. And I would, I would argue that it's actually very healthy to eat a small amount of meat. So a balanced diet cuts down those carbohydrates keeps meat in a very special place, which is animals that are cared for, no hormones, you know, they're not being they're not being beat and prodded, they're being taken care of. The meat is good. And then you cook the meat in a way that preserves its vitality and doesn't burn it. Then you then you add the the bulk of the diet, which is vegetables. You just eat a lot of vegetables for everybody. You know, there's there's a great uh, little phrase that's something like eat dirt, sleep on the floor, drink vinegar, right? It's like uh, somebody said that it was like Perfect. Yeah, that's the way to stay healthy, you know. And of course, from the dirt, you're getting all the microbes, which we need the microbes. We need the microbes from good food, you know. So getting vegetables where there's still going to be life, you know, on those vegetables. And even, you know, it's funny, I use a lot of soil-based organisms in my practice as probiotics because people are washing and scrubbing off all their vegetables anymore. And so you're not getting that, you know, kind of burst of living soil that would come on the food when we got it out of the dirt that's part of our you know our heritage and sort of the makeup of our microbiome and that's something that we don't have anymore so i try to you know that's another thing that's important to me i'm not saying go out there and get a get a bunch of dirt but you know we need to figure out a way to keep those organisms in our bodies right i hope you've enjoyed the first half of the show now it's time for a word from our sponsor that would be you 
You could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup. You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback and ideas for future shows, so send those along too. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the second half of the show. I'm really curious about this. And, uh, and, I, and, and, and it's so cool to hear that you got this background in uh, permaculture as well. So, again, in Chinese medicine, one of the central tenets is the digestive system, the earth element. We talk about how it's absolutely so essential. And in modern microbiology, we're coming to realize the incredible intelligence, strength, organ that we have in our large intestine, the human microbiome which drives much of our behavior. It's, it's responsible for so much of our immune system. I'm curious to get your take, and now I'm hearing you talk about using like, you know, things from the dirt to help the earth element, literally, of the human body. Mm-hmm. So what's the connection that you're starting to see these days between the health of the gut, the human biome in particular, and prostate health? I think it tethers on to what we're just saying, that the dietary component, the, the soil that you create that's going to move through your body, I mean, we're just basically the same as plants. They, they root their roots down into the soil, right? Then they interface with a whole bunch of microbes. Those microbes convert the soil into stuff they can use. They soak it up, and then they create new life out of it. Well, we do the same thing, but we just take the soil as food, chew it up, put it in our mouth, and then we drink it down, and we walk around with the soil in our bodies instead of it being outside. So we're like portable plants. Yeah, we're, 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 they're sessile autotrophs, you know, they're, they can't move and they make their own food and we're mobile, you know, humanoids or what we call human biomes, these sort of conglomerations of microbes that together allow us to live in this certain way. And so by taking that soil, the type of soil you put in is going to absolutely affect what lives in our bodies. And some of that is set pretty early, you know, really at a young age. So what happens to your spleen, like you're saying, and I was thinking Chinese medicine, the the stomach and the spleen being the earth element, it's really the part of the stomach function. You know, it's the whole stomach. If you include the stomach in Chinese medicine, that functional organ, then the spleen being pancreas, you know, the pancreatic enzymes and the duodenum, all the duodenal enzymes and the, the way that that system, Chinese medicine, we say separates the clear and the turbid. It's really breaking these molecules down into finer and finer components, you know, down, down to their molecular structures where you can absorb them and assimilate them into our bodies. And that process is so important for health on every level. I mean, you know, I, I, I've just been digging deeply into the field of neurogastroenterology because it's confirming for me the principles that I've known are so foundational to not only what I believe to be true, but in the foundations of Chinese medicine and Taoist thought, kind of in that way that nature thought. And the, the thought being that our mind, not, not our brain, the brain is obviously up here in our head, but our mind, that part of which, us which thinks where our intuition comes from, where our creativity comes from, where we know what we, what we need to do, where we know what our actions are, that's all coming from our gut. It's coming from the spleen and stomach. And in Chinese medicine, they've always said that the mind, the intelligence, is housed in the yi, right? Which is the, that's the spirit, the yi of the spleen and stomach. Yes, exactly. You know, they, and, and, and that was obvious to them that, yeah, you, you, know, you eat the right foods, you take care of yourself, and then your mind is clear. When you bring in turbid materials, you know, you think bring in things that are, like we said, sticky, gooey, dampening stuff like all the sugars, uh, carbohydrates, then you're going to get this damp kind of turbidity in your mind. And that's absolutely crystal clear. And so you'll get this turbidity everywhere. And like I said, at the bottom of the body, at that place where you've got this sluice, this really important gate, this dam, that's going to be a place where you're going to start to see this swollen, flabby tissue occur. So I always use the idea of a swamp, you know, like a, a swamp versus a clear pond, in Chinese medicine, all the organs are connected to geographical locations, and so the stomach is like a high mountain lake, and the spleen is like a low, a low uh, lake elevation, like like a like a really nice pond. So when the pond is functioning at a high level, when it's when everything is in harmony, what happens is 
pond water, all the waters that come in flow out smoothly. Any nutrients that come in, any soil that comes in is filtered beautifully. You know, there's butterflies and there's dragonflies and cattails. The whole thing looks just like a perfect, beautiful pond. And then if you start dumping in there a bunch of heavy, thick silt and running it down into this pond, well, after a while, it's going to get all get clogged up. It's all going to change from a beautiful, clear water into some murky bog. It's going to be bubbling and blah, blah, blah. And there's going to be midges and there's going to be, you know, all the plant life is going to change and it's going to stink and it's going to be like, whoa, what is that place? Well, that's the same thing that's happening as we eat, uh, you know, make these terrible dietary choices, um, you know, eating all these refined sugars and refined, refined flour, you know, just refined foods. We eat dairy, corn, soy, a dairy, you know, these you know, even oats and all these grains that we're taking in, we keep refining them and then finding little bits of them in every bit of food. You go into the grocery store and everything you pick up, if it's in one of the aisles, it's got some of these bits of soy or bits of, you know, corn, bits of wheat in it. And, you know, we, this is the stuff that we don't, we should not be eating all this refined stuff. My, I always go get back to whole foods. The food itself is an herb. It's a medicine. It's taking care of you. You know, it's, it's there to, to give you life and your body knows it and knows how to work with it. And that's where, you know, we shift from those foods into herbs. And then you've got all your kind of like, you know, medicinal foods, things like the mushrooms, like, you know, the poria coccus, which is so good for draining away dampness and helping the spleen and helping that digestive center to, to stay clear and to help refine the way that we interface with those microbes and the way that they're able to help us to, you know, assimilate the life experience, to take in all that nutrient and, and get it in our bloodstream. That's, that's the job of these bugs. And the, the bugs also direct how we feel, our serotonin, our dopamine. So, these choices that we make are utterly important for how we're going to feel. And, I, and, and if you go to these, you know, the idea that we get into herbs as like basically foods with a little bit more potency, we can, we can see that there's a lot of herbs that we can bring in that are helpful, that will help to, to clear away dampness, that will help to strengthen the spleen, that will help to work with the bugs, will make the bugs happier. There's herbs that will help to kind of shift their biofilms, these, these kind of, you know, cities and, and states and countries that, that uh, bacteria build inside of our GI tracts. Um, inside any kind of in infections from bacteria. But those biofilms have to be worked with, and plants help to make those biofilms accessible to our immune system, which is like, I always think of us as shepherds and farmers. And that's what, that's what our body is doing. That's what our immune system is doing. It's out there shepherding all these microorganisms, making sure that they're just in the right balance so that we are in the greatest health. But if things get cloudy and these biofilms build up and these bugs are really established and they're kind of starting to dominate, you get bugs that are dysbiotic, that are out of order, they're out of balance with the rest of the ecosystem and then the immune system's having a hard time with it. So plants can come in and start to help break down those biofilms and make those bugs more accessible to the immune system so that we can shepherd them again and kind of, hey, say guys, there's too many of you, let's calm you guys down a little bit over here, let's change the environment. Yep. And isn't it uh, also true that if you get certain, I'm going to call them good bugs, just because they're beneficial to us, you get more of a population of those, they'll often crowd out some of the ones that are not so helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of maybe, that may be one of the, you know, one of the things that's happening with the probiotics that we take in, you know, they just, they're just kind of acting as like uh, anti-bad bugs more than they are actually acting as like, you know, hey, new, new colonists to go set up new colonies. I mean, like I was saying this, we've established these networks neurologically, immunologically, the tissue and then the bugs that are there, even at a very young age, since we come through the vaginal canal and we get that first burst of microbes, I mean, and then the emotions that we feel, how the nerves build around those bugs and how those bugs grow around those nerves and how the tissue is relating. And that's, that's really powerful stuff. And it's really a deep patterns get set at a young age. So we work with those, you know, those type of patterns. So is this why certain people will eat macaroni and cheese or certain breads or you know certain things they call it comfort food right we're all familiar with the idea of comfort food especially i mean we're recording this now here at the uh winter solstice basically so you hear a lot about comfort food at this time of year so is this what you're is this i mean how do i how do i phrase this question you're talking about the bugs in the gut having an intimate connection with the neurological system is it that because the neurological system gets used to a certain uh, bacterial uh, milieu, so to speak, that certain foods will get craved? There's a lot of speculation on this, but uh, you know, the bugs may very well, the, the microbes have their own mind, just like a group of tissue makes up an organ or a group of organs makes up an organ system. You know, a large group of organisms all functioning on their own, they self-organize into something. And that self-organized sort of mind, 
you could almost imagine that it's wanting those foods in order to make its population stronger. So let's say, you know, you're the kind of person that uh, you've been under stress at work, someone's got their boot on your head, you never feel quite your self-worth, you don't feel like your, your life is very valuable when you're working, but you go home and you look in the fridge and there's a piece of cake. And immediately the bugs in your, in your gut are like, oh, that's for me. That sugar that you're going to take right there, those carbs, those are going to feed me. I'm going to give you dopamine right now. Bam. And the dopamine flood hits and you go, oh, reward. Uh, I feel Thank good you. about myself. Yeah. I'm worthy. And then you take a bite of that cake and, oh, it's reinforced. It's like, oh, God, yeah, I feel good. And this has been proven out now in some really interesting research studies that have come out looking at how people deal with this, you know, these issues of stress long term and then, you know, comfort food eating. And it's a deep pattern and it's hard to correct. And, you know, I have a lot of compassion for folks who come in the clinic, you know, who are having a hard time with those cravings and with weight loss and, you know, the health issues that come from that. It's it's one of those things that I understand. It's not something simple like, oh, come on, just get over it. It's not like that. No, it's not. I mean, if it if it were simple, we that would not be a part of our practice because it would already be taken care of. Yeah, we could just say, hey, here's what you need to do. Stop this, you know, easy. Yeah. So uh, have you found anything that does help people to to make some shifts with with this stuff that is deeply, deeply rooted? God, you know, that's a good question. It's, it's, it's definitely, you've got to get down to some of the emotional pieces of it. There has to be some emotional conversations and, you know, people need to get some kind of, a, you know, they need to do the counseling work around that. And then you've got to just take kind of baby steps, you know, you know, helping them with herbs. We've got a lot of botanicals that are really helpful. And Chinese medicine looks at the, you know, the person's constitution. You apply a formula that addresses their constitution. It starts to drain away some of that dampness, clear up some of the turbidity, starts to tonify some deficient organs, starts to strengthen the spleen and the stomach. You know, at the same time, you give them the right nutrients. You know, you start to clear away some of the, the excesses in their bowels and things. And, and pretty soon, their body starts to burn at a better, a stronger level. Then you've got to encourage them to exercise. We've got to move the body we can't have blood stagnation we can't have this kind of process of the body you know putting building more fat we got to start wanting the body to burn the fat you know you use it energy you need to but you got to create that demand and so it's it's a process and then there's certain botanicals things we can do you know there's you know even just drinking green tea there's thermogenic substances there's col coleus forskali there's uh you know, uh, even cayenne pepper and you know, a lot of the aromatic spices, things like fennel and fenugreek and oregano and uh, you know, the chai spices, turmeric and ginger and galangal, all those things are helpful. So this is interesting because these are various spices that people don't think of as medicine so much as they think of its food. It's, it's different cultures. It's like completely integrated into their, their food system. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's what I was saying. It's like, it's like you move through from food to like medicinal foods where spices really fall in that medicinal foods and then they kind of move over into more medicines and then you've got like you know potent potentized medicines then you've got like you know uh, isolated herbal extracts and you move and then you keep moving on into like molecular medicine pharmacy medicine and all that kind of stuff but it's all part of the medicine the flow of medicine and you know these spices they're really helpers they're you know and a lot of these plants are they're multitaskers they do lots of different things and you know we put them together in ways that they're kind of like they're orchestrators they're part of a, a bigger concert and they're helping to conduct and organize the functions in your body and the plants that we use aren't just like randomly selected plants out there i mean they're all these are all good plants we know that they're good they're non-toxic they you know they work with us sometimes we need plants with a little bit of toxicity we balance those out we use them in small amounts you know but it, herbal medicine is is like food again, but it's just it's 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 more refined. It's more medical. Little, a little bit supercharged. So so speaking of some of these, I mean, if you go on the internet these days, turmeric is all over the place, right? It's like the miracle cure. W what's your sense of turmeric, and and what does it do, and what's the best way to take it? Because it it from what I've heard, if you take it by itself, it's not going to do that much. You actually need to have it with other things. Yeah, I mean, God, it's such an interesting dilemma we're in. Just it's just whatever, whatever's in the limelight, right? I mean, the next thing, and you know, if, if the longer you're in this field, you, the, the more you see these things come and go, rise and fall, right? you know, the next oh, thing. Oh yeah, it's it, yeah. There's always the next thing. Yeah, and turmeric is just new superfood. Exactly, turmeric is the thing right now, and it's really cool and it's it's amazing. But you know, if if we apply the same rigorous research, and the guy who really 
was a spearhead for this was a guy named Bharat Agarwal. He's a, a researcher, a PhD at MD Anderson. And he, you know, for 40 years, he really worked on spices and their abilities to, to work with the body and act as medicine. And, and he worked a lot on turmeric and, and the curcuminoids and their role in cancer. And, you know, he published a ton of papers and really got it a big name. And that's part of what made turmeric so famous. But, you know, if we apply that same kind of rigor to, you know, a great number of plants, we would find similar things happening. And I, because turmeric is in the, the, the category of herbs in Chinese medicine that promote blood circulation and remove blood stasis, you know, it's sort of uh, what it does in Chinese medicine is it, it moves the blood. It helps to invigorate blood flow and break up stagnant areas. So one of the things that we found it does in more of a modern context is that we've seen that it's got this anti-inflammatory activity. And, you know, you look at these diagrams now that show how many different pathways turmeric modulates, it, it's pretty staggering. But again, a lot of plants would modulate tons of different pathways. That's what they do. They're multitaskers. So taking turmeric is fine. But again, it's not this anti-inflammatory wonder drug that's perfect for everybody. Remember, we look at the patient, we want to say, is this patient cold or is this patient, patient warm, right? You start with your eight principles. What's the, what is the condition of the patient and how do I match the medicine to that patient? So turmeric is warm, first of all. So if a person is very hot, very warm, and they have inflammation, well, giving them turmeric isn't probably the best tool, the best choice. We have other choices, other anti-inflammatory for, you know, just to use a, a modern term, um, herbs that would promote blood circulation and remove blood stagnation that would be cooling in nature, that would be more suited to a certain person's constitution. But we're not doing that level of herbalism on sort of the, you know, like you said, clickbait, right, on the internet. Like we're not that's not what's happening. People just want, I want to know what's the thing for this. I want, I have a prostate problem. I want you to give me the herb. Yeah. I want the herb or I want the shortcut or I want the trick. Absolutely. And there are no, there really are no shortcuts. Tricks and shortcuts don't work, right? That's uh, just they can help you sell something if you got something for sale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's great for that. Yeah. But you know, shortcuts i mean there, there's a time for for action that that's quick in in medicine but this stuff we're talking about these are chronic prostate conditions i mean we really haven't talked about prostatitis in this you know this conversation well let's jump into it for a moment we, we, we still have a few minutes left here and, and you know we could probably go for an hour or six with this this is this is kind of fun but talk to us a bit about prostatitis and and how all that fits into this picture well, I, I will, but I definitely wanted to hit a couple of the key nutrients, you know, for the prostate in general. And it ties into all, you know, we could talk about the chron, you know, these these prostate conditions. We've got prostatitis, which hang on a second. I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep you on the rails here. Uh, you just mentioned that there's some key nutrients. Let's do the key nutrients, and then we'll jump into prostatitis. Okay. Well, my my key nutrient, the key nutrient, you know, for the prostate is absolutely zinc. No question about it. Zinc not only is key immune system cofactor, the cofactor in some 300 known enzymatic reactions, zinc is also one of the natural ways to inhibit dihydrotestosterone through that 5-alpha reductase pathway we talked about before. So preventing testosterone from going over to dihydro, that which is a good thing. It's also involved in a lot of uh, sexual function uh, issues, like it's, it's part of the, the seminal fluid production. It's a cofactor in the making of seminal fluid. It's involved with the testes, the pituitary, so all the things that go in that part of the body. And then there's just a bunch of research on zinc as a preventive for prostate cancer and for BPH, and then zinc also being, you know, really helpful to, you know, inhibit growth of the prostate, even if you already have the disease. So all my guys are on zinc. And then I actually will use either a zinc challenge where you take a five milligram or eight milligram dose of zinc in your mouth, swish it around in a tablespoon of water for about 30 seconds, and then just see how that sensation is. You can swallow it or spit it out. But then if your mouth gets real kind of dry and bitter and there's a little battery acid taste, well, then you've got a lot of zinc in your body. It's like your body will feel those cations interacting at the tissue border. But then if you if you feel nothing, if it tastes sweet and you don't get anything, then you know you're zinc deficient. So if you don't have a test readily handy and you want to give somebody zinc, you can go ahead and do that and you can test them that way. It's a real nice, easy way to go. But then also doing serum testing with zinc is a really nice way to see too. And you'll find that in you know men who have prostate problems, almost always the zinc is low and copper's relatively high. And when I say low and high, I mean in a relative scale. People aren't like, you know, if the, if the low end of zinc in this in the lab range is 60, they're probably, you know, 66, 72. Whereas the copper, if the high end is 110, they're going to be around, you know, 85, 90, something like that. 
uh, zinc and copper push each other around. So by getting your zinc levels up, you reduce your copper a little bit and vice versa. So it's actually the zinc to copper ratio is a much bigger issue than just the prostate. It's a big issue in cancer, and it's actually a big issue just in human health. And in medical school, all of us are trained that you know if you give somebody more than 30 milligrams of zinc, you got to give it with copper. Well, I'm finding that that's not the case. I don't need to give people copper hardly ever, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. All the copper in foods, copper pipes, uh, copper is showing up in the in the air. There's you know the, the some reason we're getting more copper, and we're also zinc deficient. Our soils are very zinc deficient. Our foods are zinc deficient, and so we're not getting enough zinc. So zinc is absolutely my number one nutrient, and I'd say most men can easily do 50 to 100 milligrams of zinc a day. And if you're not monitoring it over time, over years, then you'll probably want to check it at some time or just reduce that dose of zinc. But there's been a number of studies, 100 milligrams of zinc for a month. It's great, no problems. I've had guys that needed 200 plus milligrams a day for years, and their zinc level still barely gets into the range that I want it to be. So that's my number one nutrient for the prostate. Of course, vitamin D, you got to have your vitamin D levels normalized. You know, it's another big component for um, the function of the immune system. Yeah. And what would you call a normalized vitamin D level? Because often what you see is like the recommended, you know, I talk to my functional medicine friends, they go, yeah, it's actually on the low side. Right. Well, standard lab range is like 30 to 100 nanograms per milliliter. That's, and, and that's, that's a big range because there's, you know, and there's studies constantly coming out trying to evaluate really where is the target. And so somewhere in the realm of 40 to 80 is absolutely safe. Um, if you go over 80, there are some controversial studies in breast cancer recently. There was a study in that area. So 50 to 70, you're really safe shooting for somewhere around 60. That's a good place to be. And there are two different vitamin D levels to check. There's the 25 hydroxy cholecalciferol. Then there's the 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol, which is the activated form. And conversions happen between those two, just like we're talking about all these conversions in hormones and so forth. Vitamin D can be converted into its active form. And when that happens, then you're, you're going to see either the two numbers are pretty equal or there's a discrepancy there. And you want to take a look at that as well. And what you want to do is make sure the vitamin D, the D3, the 25-hydroxy is right in that range, 50 to 70, and then make sure that the converted form 125 is also in that same mid-range and then you'll be like okay good there's a good balance here so this gets to be a lot more complicated than uh, there's a number and i want my vitamin d obviously there's different forms uh, just from talking to you here you know and again we, we talk about testosterone there's the downstream metabolites it it's way more than just looking at one aspect of these things it sounds like it's looking at downstream metabolites it's looking at what's converting into what what controls something what exhibits an inhibitory effect or a promoting effect on something it's it's constantly in flux absolutely yeah and that's the that's the hard part about you know when you try to take the body and you try to reduce it down to its reductionist you know to this this these this individual components these molecules and interactions what you're doing is you're constantly missing the big picture and so that's why I'm always trying to, you know, to teach my students and just share with my patients and people to keep stepping back and take the big picture and remember that we really don't know everything. We don't know much at all. Just because we can isolate something and look down at its, you know, at what it is, it doesn't mean that we understand it at all. It just means that we can see that thing. That's that's cool. Yeah, we see testosterone. Great. We know now. One of the things I was going to say about testosterone. I mean. Not only is it the key for cardiovascular health, and you know it's so important for regenerating our tissues, but in prostate cancer, having low testosterone is the biggest risk factor for having prostate cancer. Not only that, but the lower your testosterone is, the higher at risk you are for aggressive disease. So what about these treatments for prostate cancer that is testosterone-dependent? And they give injections that like take your testosterone to zero and then the PSA drops and evidently the cancer stops growing. Well, you know, those things absolutely work for a time. But as we see in any e ecological system, if you suppress one organism, one life form, one system, you know, completely, what it does instead of just dying is it adapts and it mutates, and it becomes something else. And so we're finding that this hormonal therapy for prostate cancer called ADT, right, androgen deprivation therapy, it's actually not working for people. And in many cases, 
it's it's a powerful enough inhibition because you blocked that conversion, like you said. There's no more testosterone. Heck, there's no there's really no hormones at all in these guys. You know, their estrogens in the garbage, their testosterone's in the garbage. You know, they don't have any ability to regenerate their tissues. Well, as you can imagine, their heart starts to fall apart, the vascular starts to fall apart, they start bleeding, their 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 minds go totally off the rails, they they lose their neurological re- rebuilding, regenerative capacity, bone health declines. All these things start to occur. So that's the one downside is that you die not because of the prostate cancer, but because your body falls apart. And then not only that, but you you know, you lose your libido, you you have no reproductive function, you can't get an erection. There's that end of things. But then you also created the situation where many men end up with a an androgen independent disease down the road, seven to ten years later, where now they've got cancer in the bones and it doesn't respond to to a, a, attacks on its testosterone, on you know trying to inhibit testosterone or inhibiting dihydrotestosterone. It's going to grow out outside of that. It created new growth factors and it's a different beast. And those those are much harder to treat. That's when you start getting into like, oh God, is there some kind of chemotherapy that might help me right now? Is there some kind of other drug, you know? And so those therapies, you know, the androgen, androgen deprivation, in my practice, as far as recommending it for men, it's really reserved for men that have been, they've done a lot, they've got aggressive disease, and they can do it in, an, in a, what I call it, it's an intermittent androgen deprivation where on, you know, every once in a while, if you watch their, their PSA starts to climb, you know, you're doing your botanical medicine, you've got all your herbs in there, they've got their nutrients, they're doing great lifestyle, and th- they've slowed down the process of the, of the PSA going up and the prostate thereby swelling, and over time, you're able to just once in a while, if that PSA gets a little bit too high and you're like, you know, hmm, and you can, you know, because you've seen scans, you watch the PSA goes up, the burden of the disease goes up, right? So the prostate cancer gets bigger, the prostate's larger as the PSA is higher, the prostate's smaller as the PSA is lower. So as you, you can watch these two things and correlate them, and then once they're correlated, then if you treat the person with androgen deprivation therapy, let's say, and there's some newer drugs that are a little less detrimental than the original Lupron, which was the one that was the luteinizing hormone agonist that created a big surge of testosterone out of your, you know, out of your testes that was so intense that it shut down your pituitary. Pituitary said, oh my God, I can't put on any more testosterone, and it would last for six months. There's some other options now that are more direct, but still have the same effects. You know, we talked about the, the overall overarching decline of the endocrine system, but it's the uh, the application of these things in the uh, the right timing, just a little bit where you need it, just to kind of get ahead again. Because cancer is a game of momentum. It's the more momentum that cancer has, the harder it is to treat. The, the less effective your natural medicines are going to be to change the ecological terrain, and the more likely you're going to need some kind of a heavy-duty therapy, like a chemotherapy, a targeted agent, an immunotherapy, something else that in order to preserve a person's life. But even then, those things aren't as effective because the cancer's momentum is greater. So you watch it carefully, you maintain it, you keep pressure on it, and you keep the body working hard to suppress it. And then if it starts to get to a certain place where you're like, mm, it's a little too big, it's gaining momentum, you hit it with that androgen deprivation with the Lupron shot or the, the new stuff to Garelix, and then you shut down that PSA again, you, sh- you shrink the prostate again for a month, two months, three months. Right. So it's not a long-term solution. It's a way of managing the disease process, and that's going to shift as the disease shifts. Absolutely. Yep. And you got to, yeah, you got to stay right on. And these principles, again, not trying to go, I'm just going to shut down all the fuel to this cancer right now. Well, in nature, that's just when you inhibit one pathway, it nature goes around. Yep. It always does. And plants are multitaskers, Michael, right? They don't, they don't hit one pathway. No, they have all these constituents and they work, they work in all kinds of different ways. So Jason, wow, we're like over an hour into this and we could go a lot more. So I'd I'd like to have you back for part two at some point in the near future. In the meantime, if you could just give us a a couple, I mean, you've given us some great gems here, but you could, for guys that are listening, uh, some basic go-tos, and and I'm not asking for clickbait shortcuts here, just, you know, a, a couple basic things that they could maybe just summarize it up that they can do to help themselves. And then more importantly, where can they find you on the internet and and some resources that you think would be helpful for these guys? My website, jademountainmedicine.com. That's the clinic that I work out of here in Ashland. Um, you can find there. That's where you can contact me. I've also got some resources there. I have a really nice uh, prostate lecture that I did earlier this year in uh, that was down in um, Arizona at the Southwest Botanical Medicine Conference at the uh, Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. 
and it's about it's about a three three and a half hour talk and the slides are all there too so there's a lot of great information there and it's just free for anybody to have it's a, a nice compilation of the overview of kind of chronic prostate conditions um, we never got to prostatitis so that'll have to be in our next conversation michael some of the things that the takeaways from you know that i would want to just have men have is think about it like this first of all okay my prostate is probably going to give me problems if i live long enough and i want to live long so how do I prevent me, myself from having prostate problems right now? Okay, so one is, of course, exposure. You know, you don't want to be working in chemistry labs and being careless. You don't want to be exposed to oil refineries. You don't want to be next to a paper mill. You know, if these things are occurring, if there's environmental things that are that are that you're getting into your body, you need to be aware of those and try to minimize them uh, because they do l- literally have a very well clearly defined deleterious effect. Now. As far as taking things in, like I said, number one food is going to be vegetables. You know, things like broccoli, cabbage, watercress, fennel, all these things that we talk about, just foods that come into your body that actually have strong anti-cancer activities, help to normalize these enzyme pathways, normalize metabolism, normalize digestive function, and feed the, the, the microbes in our gut the right soil so that they're the right microbes to help you feel really good. That's essential. Watch your meat consumption. Don't eat a lot of it. It should be a small portion, 15 to 20% of your diet, and it can be fish, turkey, pork, buffalo, elk, venison, whatever you love, and make sure it's free range. It doesn't have to necessarily be organic, but it should be free range. It should not have hormones in it It should no, no, and no antibiotics. It should be you know, given the food it's supposed to eat, and then that meat should then be cooked, like I said, mostly in a rare form, medium rare, even medium if you can't handle it, but don't burn the outsides. Keep it Keep it red on the inside and keep it not too hot on the outside. And then eat lots of good fats. Good fats are like coconut oils, olive oils, sesame. Um, you know, butter is okay with ghee. But just watch out for all those kind of sticky foods like too much cheese, all the big carbohydrates, you know, the pastries and cakes and all the sugary stuff. Even things oh, – well, people say, well, well, when you say sugar, do you mean like honey? Of course, honey is mostly sugar. Molasses is, is, a, is a good substitute. But things like maple syrup, really sweet. Fruits in general are very sweet. We live in the northern climate. We talked about how it's solstice here. Well, eating fruits this time of year is not really in harmony with our environment. This is a good time to eat soups and stews that are based in bone broth that have a good balance of vegetables, maybe a little bit of starch. Maybe there's one potato in your stew. That's great. But going out and just eating bunches of carbohydrates or bunches of fruits with lots of sugar is not in harmony. So those things will cause turbidity, the dampness, and cloud the system. So on top of all that, getting the right diet, lots of vegetables, a little bit of meat, cut down the carbohydrates, especially all the, the sugary stuff, and then go over to making sure that you sleep well, try to put your life in a rhythmic pattern, You know, have rhythm to it. Don't just let it be scattered. You're sleeping whenever, wherever. It gives your body time to adapt. Try to get your meals a little bit regular. Try to eat three meals a day, and then exercise. You know, Exercise has been proven to increase testosterone levels, no question about it. So you know, and this is where you want, you know, and I'll, I'll pass it over to you, but, you know, you want to get some like walking, hiking, biking, swimming, these kind of things. And then you also want to push to some high intensity for a little bit of time in those exercise routines. You know, make sure you're working yourself a little bit, you know, and even weight bearing exercise is really good to lift things and pull things around. It'll pulls the tendons, pull on the bones, and then that stimulates the bones to grow. So these are all really important things for the prostate, keeping it strong and healthy. And remember, Testosterone is not the problem. Testosterone is the solution, but it's more the solution beforehand. And you don't want to take so much testosterone that you look like the Incredible Hulk. You want to have just enough that you look like the Taoist master who's well-balanced and well-muscled and lean and has full you know, flexibility and access and your body is strong and supple. That's what we want to create. So having a nice, normal, mid-upper range of testosterone in your body, making sure that the free testosterone is available and you're not converting into other metabolites, that's what we're looking to do. All right. That sounds great. Jason, thanks again so much for uh, this conversation today. And I'm going to look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Hey, it's really a pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so, please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. 
Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in again next time. Thank you.